Jesse Pollock is on the show today. If you have no idea who that is, well, before this episode is over, you will definitely know who he is. But just to give you a bit of a preview, he is a podcaster himself, which we'll plug on the show, just in case you want to check him out also. He's got a couple podcasts. He's also a writer. He's got I think two novels under his belt. I might be wrong about that. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jesse. Sorry. But uh, one of the novels he has is actually been turned into a documentary called The Acid King that just dropped on VOD a couple weeks ago, actually. And so it's available on multiple platforms, which you'll hear about in the episode. And you can check it out in the show notes where to find it also. The Acid King is about a grisly murder that happened in Long Island back in 1984 that really kind of kicked off the satanic panic craze of the 1980s and people worried about Satan worshiping and whatnot. And it's a really great deep dive into the crime that's committed and the backstory and everything and what kind of came from it. I highly recommend it. I'm not even just saying this because he's on my show. It was actually a real fun murder mystery. So if all you fans of murder documentaries out there, and I know there are some of you that listen Uh, feel free to check it out. And sidebar, before we get started here with the show, uh, big shout out to everybody who bought the No Shave November shirts on tpublic.com. They are still available for the entire month of November, and all the proceeds from the sales are going to preventcancer.org. I have a little fundraiser thing going on. I think it still says that I've raised zero dollars, but I've actually just haven't sent the money in yet so (laughs) there's or if you want if you want to donate through there also you can and not get a shirt whatever it's all good but um i'll be sending shirts out to all you that bought this week and there's a link to that in the bio also so again buy a shirt with my stupid bearded face on it and you're helping for a good cause for the month of november anyway on with the show with a brand new theme song that some of you film buffs might recognize you might not but i heard it's royalty free so i'm gonna hold on to it till i get the cease and desist letter anyway welcome to the basement all righty jesse pollock welcome to the basement my friend Thanks, Tyler. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. You have quite the documentary that uh, by the time this airs, it will have already dropped on a VOD on a few multiple different platforms. Uh, It's called The Acid King. Uh, We'll touch on it a little bit down the road. It's a a murder, murder documentary because I know I got some, you know, female fans who like that kind of stuff, you know, but um, I believe if I remember correctly, I was told once by my publisher that the true crime demographic is it's either 75 or 80% female. So I believe it. Oh yeah, dude. I, my, my wife won't watch a monster gore fest movie with me, but she will, we're sure as shit sitting down for a four episode miniseries on some serial killer. And she's like, listen, Tyler, I need to see real people die. It's not enough if Jason or Michael Myers or Freddie kills someone. I need real blood. It's like, whatever you need, babe. <laughs> That's about right, actually. No, it's, it's a great movie. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's it's actually the... Um, I'm just going to kind of fanboy out here, but I remember the, uh, the, the image of the killer kind of became this iconic... Uh, oh, yeah. I feel like I saw it on t-shirts, and I know, like, bands. and I mean, there's kind of a... 
the third act of the movie, there's kind of like a uh, a lot of like kind of talks about like the cult following kind of the, the, mm-hmm. the crime created. I'm talking too much. I do that all the time with my guests. Uh, give me the elevator. Give the audience the elevator pitch. What's what the movie's about? Well, The Acid King uh, chronicles the real life and crimes of Ricky Casso, who was uh, a 17 year old um, LSD, PCP, pot, you name it. He was a 17 year old drug dealer living in a, a little village called Northport, which is on the uh, North Shore of Long Island in Suffolk County. And uh, in 1984, he made worldwide headlines for murdering his friend Gary Lowers in what the uh, the the police, the press, television, news, you name it. Across the board, they labeled it a satanic cult sacrifice. And um, as you were mentioning uh, a few moments ago, it, you know, uh, no pun intended, uh, attracted a cult following. It inspired Dozens of heavy metal songs, um, several horror movies, at least two books. And uh, the film tries to peel back at the legend to find the true story behind uh, what happened that night in uh, June 1984. Because a lot of it has been shrouded in mystery over the years. And uh, the little bit that wasn't was completely exploited by the, uh, the media, print, television, what have you. And uh, twisted into something that has just rivaled most urban legends that came out of that era and and really, really helped kick off the satanic panic as we know it in America. Yeah, no, there was definitely a good hook in the second half to what, you know, Christian televangelists were kind of saying about the movie and there's obviously oh my god when they fucking called acdc a blood cult i fucking yeah. lost it <laughs> acdc are a, a blood cult and i'm like this is great acdc has so been around stupid. for like 10 years already and they're just you know deciding to oh yeah and and it's hysterical because i mean you know you try to explain and i'm not trying to sound boomerish here but if you try to explain to like gen z like, oh, yeah, no, ACDC scared the shit out of people in the 80s. Like, a kid got arrested with an ACDC shirt on, and, and they were convinced that he was a satanic cult leader. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? I just bought a t- an ACDC t-shirt for my dog at Walmart. You know, it's just like, you know, because ACDC is now like, well, hey, it's family friendly. It's in fucking Iron Man and all this other stuff and, and commercials. But back then in the 80s, like... It was like, I don't know, the, the Sex Pistols, almost. It was this, oh yeah, the this devil band, and, and they make, you know, obscene songs and all this stuff. You know, it was pre-Gigi Allen, I guess. People, people didn't really understand how tame that shit really was, but at the time... Oh, it, it scared the hell out of people for some stupid reason. Yeah, um, we will... I have a lot to ask you or maybe contribute to that. A little later sure. on, I can't wait to talk about it, but I want to get kind of get to know you. I know we talked a little bit during the day before we got this episode started. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you're, you're a podcast yourself. You just tell me real quick about your what your show. Uh, well, I co-host a couple podcasts and I, I'm the primary host of one true crime one. Uh, the true crime one I do is called Devil's Teeth, and that one uh, chronicles the uh the case that i wrote my first book about which was a proto satanic panic case that happened in new jersey in 1972 and that was the 
unsolved murder of Jeanette De Palma, a 16-year-old girl who disappeared while hitchhiking one day. And six weeks later, her body is found in the woods, completely decomposed. Um, suddenly, rumors set off in the town that, oh, it was found on an altar. And then other people are like, no, it was found in a in a coffin-shaped perimeter of logs and sticks. And then other people are like, no, there was little crosses found around the body. And people carved arrows in the trees leading to it. So it kicked off this firestorm in this town um, of all these people. Uh, they were paranoid at one point about a coven of witches. And then, uh, a, a, in, you know, I, you can't say it's an echo because it happened beforehand. But in, in an eerie similarity, there were concerns over a teenage satanic cult um, operating in the woods nearby. And uh, so uh, much like the film puts uh, voices and faces to the people in my second book, The Acid King... Uh, the podcast Devil's Teeth puts the voices to the uh, the people that I interviewed in the book, and it also provides uh, updates that have happened since the uh, the book first came out in 2015. And then uh, the two comedy podcasts that I co-host, um, the first one is called Podcast 1289, and our big thing is we basically just find like the most bizarre, like UFO, ghost, cryptid. Uh, conspiracy theory stories and just totally ridicule them. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, I guess, last podcast on the left meets Mystery Science Theater 3000. It's it's like the dumber, the better. Like for, for a good example, we have uh, an episode about this very serious conspiracy theory that's out there that Stephen King shot and killed John Lennon and not Mark David Chapman. And I heard about this, I think. Yeah, yeah. He was put up to it by Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the, the, genes the genesis of that theory is just some guy in Florida noticed that when Stephen King was chubby in the 80s, he looked like Mark David Chapman. And so he turned that into, no, no, Stephen King killed John Lennon. I swear. He, like, decked out a panel van with, like, LennonMurderTruth.com and, like, moved to Sarasota, Florida and started crashing like city council meetings and shit with these giant signs like find the truth. King killed Lennon and all this. So like that's the type of shit we talk about on there. And then the uh, the other podcast I co-host with some of the same guys from 1289, but a few other ones too, um, is called True Crime Movie Club. And that one's a little more like uh, Red Letter Media. Uh, we basically watch and review these god-awful, bottom-of-the-barrel true crime movies. Anything from um, made-for-TV-of-the-week schlock from the early 90s, like Judgment Day, the John List story, starring um, murderer uh, Robert Blake. Um, he really went method on that one. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then what was... Oh, holy shit. What was that other one we watched? Oh, yeah. The... Um, the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson, which was originally titled The Haunting of Nicole Brown Simpson, because it was made by the same people that made um, The Haunting of Sharon Tate, starring Hilary Duff. We watched both of those pieces of shit. And um, we have this running gag on the show that we do now, which is more like a shitty deal with the devil, where we decided like, oh, hey, there's over like three dozen shitty direct-to-video Amityville you know, sequels because there was a court case sometime in like the eighties or nineties where it was decided that you cannot trademark the name Amityville. You could trademark the Amityville horror, 
but because the Am- but because Amityville is a pre-existing, you know, village or town, whatever it is uh, on Long Island, like you can't just copyright the word Amityville. So once the word about that got out, everyone was like, "Holy shit, we could just retitle our shitty horror movie that no one watched on Tubi and just slap Amityville on it and we'll make I don't know, 12 bucks instead of 2." And so now there is just dozens and dozens of dozens of these awful Amityville movies. And so we like made this pledge, like we're going to watch every single one of them. We're going to go for the Guinness world record of the only podcast that watched every single Amityville horror sequel. And we made that deal, uh, two years ago. And since then, like another 25 shitty direct to video Amityville sequels have come out. So I don't know if it's humanly possible at this point, but we're going to try. We're going to try and get them all. Go for it, dude. <laughs> oh, they're fucking terrible, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Um, well, no, that that's no, that's that's friggin' awesome. You're you're kind of a I mean, just kind of going from what I've little tidbit of research I've known learned about you. You're kind of a jack and ball trades podcaster, writer. Like, how did you like what take me back to the early days? Like, what did what were you doing as a kid creatively? I that's always kind of my like gateway open door question here on the show. Like, what was it? Were you a creative kid? Like, what I don't know. What how did it all start? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, if I had to give like like the the glamorized version of it through rose-tinted glasses. I guess I was kind of like uh, Tommy Jarvis in uh, Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Like, I was just, I was like this nerd that just, I loved books about monsters and Bigfoot and ghosts and horror movies and, like, horror makeup. Like, I'll never forget, um, I got super into werewolves when I was a kid, just from, probably just from reading, like, Goosebumps. And my mom, who's a big movie buff, she was like, okay, there's a werewolf movie. You can't watch the whole thing, but we're going to drive over to Palmer Video and I'm going to rent it for you and I'll let you watch the transformation scene. It's called An American Werewolf in London and the special effects are going to blow your mind. And I was like eight. And I didn't understand why I couldn't watch the whole movie at the time. But she was like, no, you can't watch the whole thing, but I'll show you the, the transformation scene. So she shows you a really it. fucked up scene. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. I, I couldn't fucking believe it. And like, to this day, like there's still parts about that scene that like completely throw me for a loop. Like when, when, uh, David's hand starts stretching, I, my mind was fucking blown at that. I was like, how the fuck did they do that? You feel and she goes, like, yeah. You feel oh my God, what's the, going on in there. The Foley work in that, all the bone creaking yeah. sounds. It's genius. And then the hair popping out of his back. It was it was like one of the first times I'd ever watched a horror movie where even as a kid, I couldn't figure it out. Because like other stuff I'd watched, it was like, oh, well, that's a guy with makeup on his face and, and fake blood or whatever. But this I was watching, I was like, holy shit, this guy's face just stretched before that's my eyes. That's the one I'm, that gets me when his snout extends and everything. That, oh, is, that man. is the worst. It was the greatest thing I'd ever seen in my fucking life. And I'm like, I'm quizzing my mom the whole time. And I'm like, what is this? What, how did they do this? How did they do this? And she's like, well, some of it is is makeup they put on the actor's face. And she goes, the rest of it is a robot. And I'm like, a fucking robot werewolf? What are you talking about? And she goes, oh, yeah, it's kind of like a puppet, but they radio control it. And I just couldn't believe it. And this this was in the day and age before special features. So, like... I'm trying to think if I was about eight years old, that would have been 96. It was a VHS tape. I couldn't just like 
go hop on YouTube and like talk, Rick Baker, American Werewolf in London special effects. So like, I would just like, like find like archival shit from magazines, like as like the, like the internet came about and you could find like a scan of, I don't know, famous monsters of Filmlander, you know, Fangoria, stuff like that and go, you would get like little glimpses like, oh, a, a behind the scenes Polaroid I haven't seen before. And shit like that just amazed me. So like I was always trying to figure out like how did how would they do things like that? Like I used to make like plaster molds to make uh, like latex appliances. I was just picking out every book I could from the library to figure out how monster effects were done. And uh, I, a lot of that being into like, you know, monsters in the supernatural, and all that kind of led to where uh, I, I guess you would say the path to becoming a journalist, because my first real I don't want to say gig because it wasn't like a, a nine to five writing job. But my first like publicate my, my first published work was in Weird New Jersey magazine. And, and that was something um, my grandmother and my grandfather uh, they had a, a trailer at a campground in upstate New York and we would go up there every summer when I was a kid and it was like a long two and a half hour drive. And, uh, they always used to stop at this, uh, this record store in New Jersey called Vintage Vinyl. It actually sadly just closed down this year. I'm still super bummed about it, but, um, on the magazine rack, they had all these things from weird New Jersey. I think they were up to like 13 issues by then. And my grandmother saw that and said, oh, well, Jesse likes weird, creepy things. He'll like this. And, you know, she paid the five bucks for it and was like, here, you can read this on the drive up to the campground. And I was fucking hooked. Like, it was the most horrifying and intriguing and, like, it, just getting your blood going thing I've ever read. And it was all about shit happening literally in your backyard. You know, stuff about, uh, like... Princess Doe, this this terrifyingly creepy, um, unsolved, brutal murder case from Blairstown, New Jersey. Coincidentally, th this happened um, a year after they shot the first Friday the 13th there. Like, in that issue, it was all about her murder and how, like, we don't know her name. We don't even know what her face looks like because whoever killed her bashed her face in. No one has ever solved this. The police need your help. And then from there, you would go to another article on another page about, you know, someone living in a haunted house in an old part of New Jersey. Like, you know, like the Revolutionary War battlefields weren't too far away. So there was all that rich lure there. All the way to people that insisted like, oh, yeah, I've seen a fucking werewolf in New Jersey. But we're going to call it a dog man so it doesn't sound too, too weird. But like stuff like that. And I was like, this is the greatest fucking thing I have ever encountered. I can't believe it's only $5. Like it's a steal. And so as I got older, I would rack my brain for things in the area where I grew up in Union County. I lived in Clark and Rawway and go, oh, you know, is this worth writing into the magazine about? And, uh... A couple of my articles from, God, I may have been like 12 or 13. Yeah, 13, because it was 2001, um, made it in there. And that sort of started my uh, relationship with the magazine that led all the way up to writing Death on the Devil's Teeth with Mark Moran, who co-created Weird New Jersey. Because that case, the Jeanette Palma case, that the, the public... Um, reinterest in it because it faded from the headlines really quickly in 1972 so much so that 
it really kicked off a lot of rumors that, oh yeah, the cops had it covered up because it didn't look good in this nice town. That's why it disappeared. But either way, it, it disappeared from 1972 until like 1998. A reader named Billy Martin wrote into the magazine and he just said, oh yeah, uh, when I was a kid in Springfield in the 70s, like a dog brought home a body part. And, like, it kicked off this murder investigation. I don't know if it's an urban legend or not, but that's what I remember hearing. And then, so they would print that letter in that issue. And then, that we once that issue was out, they would get more letters from people that had seen that letter. And it would be like, oh, yeah, no, that happened. Her name was Jeanette De Palma, and she was found on an altar. And so... You know, after years and years of these letters coming in and Mark trying to get information on the case himself, we decided to team up and tackle that story. So, like, all of that just goes back to me being this nerdy little kid in, in suburban New Jersey reading Goosebumps books and and watching monster movies on, on TV. But, but the weird thing is, like, there's, like, two trajectories there because... And in, in none of that was any desire for me to make movies. I didn't think that that was something you could do. Like, that didn't come until later for me. And when was, like, when did you kind of realize you can do that or you want to do that? It's a weird thing because it was like, it was something I kind of messed around with as friends, but it was never under the guise of, we're going to become filmmakers one day. It was just like, this would be fun to screw around with. Like, um, God, if I had to go all the way back, it was probably, do you remember a show called Are You Afraid of the Dark? Of course I do, man. <laughs> dude, dude, we, we were so, fu- I don't know how old you are. I'm 33. Uh, but yeah, I'm, we're the same age, man. I was noticing as you were dropping some dates, fucking I was like, egg. oh, we're the same age. You read these magazines when you were eight and there, and I was like, yeah, I was reading Fangoria when I was eight too. So. Oh, hell yeah, dude. Yeah, fucking egg. Great. So we're on the same page here. Are You Afraid of the Dark was... Like, it, I, I've always said this. If Goosebumps books were as scary as Are You Afraid of the Dark's episodes, it would have taken over the fucking world. Um, because that show was, I mean, it, it was cool. It could be funny. But atmospherically, it was one of the creepiest things around. And I remember when I was maybe 10, I saw the episode The Tale of the Midnight Madness, which was about... Um, these two kids working in this rundown shitty movie theater and Dr. Fink comes in. Sorry, Dr. Vink. Um, and he's just like, uh, oh, yeah, I got this old creepy horror movie that I made in the 20s. It's totally going to revitalize your theater. And it was Nosferatu. And yeah, what happened? You remember that one? And in, the twist in it is Nosferatu can come out of the fucking movie and kill people. And I saw this on Nickelodeon, like it had to have been a rerun because this would have been 98. And I think that episode was from the early 90s. But either way, I saw it and I was just fucking transfixed by it. And I guess my old man could see that I was because he like walked by, saw me watching it, sat down and watched a couple minutes of it with me. And he goes, you know, that's a real movie, right? I'm like, no fucking way. And he's like, yeah, it, it's it's called Nosferatu. It was made in Germany in the 20s. He goes, we watched it when I was in art school. And I'm like, we got to go to Palmer Video right now and go rent it. Like, I, I don't know if Palmer Video was a national thing or not, but growing up in New Jersey, like in Union County, like none of us went to Blockbuster. Like we went to Palmer Video. Like it was great. They, they had a great selection. Everyone that worked there was super nice. I don't know how mom and pop it was because they had a couple locations, but... 
to me, like that was movie heaven as a kid. And I was like, dad, dad, we gotta, if it's a real movie, we gotta go get it from Palmer Video. And my dad's trying to like temper my like 10 year old autistic expectations here. And he's like, Jesse, it's a silent German expressionist movie from 1922. Palmer Video's not gonna have it. And I'm like, dad, no, we gotta go. We gotta at least try, dad. And he's like, all right, fuck it, let's go. You're going to be disappointed, but, you know, I guess he figured, well, we'll get him something else. And no shit, Palmer fucking video had a copy of Nosferatu Palmer on VHS. Palmer fucking video. Palmer fucking video, man. And I remember just being like, I need to own this. And so I, I, with the help of my father, Jerry rigged two VCRs together so I could dub a copy of this tape. And it was like... It was like discovering the fucking Blair Witch tapes or, uh, I don't know, the, the videotape from The Ring. It became this thing that I had. Oh, my God, this movie's almost 100 years old. The vampire is super creepy in it. And no one in my group of friends knew about it. You know, like horror movies to them at that time, it was Jason and Michael Myers. And like, I'm going to school and I'm like, guys, there's this fucking movie from the 20s from Germany that is the creepiest thing I've ever seen. It's silent. It's black and white. The vampire looks real in it. And it's like no vampire you've ever seen before. It's not some Bella Lugosi shit. And everyone I showed that fucking movie to was transfixed by it too. They're like, what is this? And I'm like, right? Like, I'm like, fucking, are you afraid of the dark, man? He's terrifying. It was in Max Shrek is the actor. Yep. Yeah, he's because when he when he turns, it's like his eyes come first. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of his body. And it's just fucking terrifying. It, it is one so of the scariest many, movies I've ever seen. So many people uh, later on, I don't want to say ripped off. It, it could have been subconscious or a deliberate nod. But you see that in so much shit afterwards. Like the first Terminator movie, which I will die on this hill, is a fucking slasher movie and oh, not yeah. a science fiction movie. Talked about and it plenty of times on the show. Oh my god, one of the best slashers of all time. It's a det- it's a detective who done it. It's a slasher. It's a it's a future horror. It's great. It almost makes you wish like, oh man, like maybe they should have stopped after this one, but T2 is so fucking cool too in its own right, but that's a whole other show right there. But the Terminator would do that, move the eyes first and then the body would have to follow and then Kane Hodder did that as Jason. It so much of the modern horror um, groundwork was laid by this little, you know, creepy German movie that was almost lost to time forever. Like, if you know anything about Nosferatu, like, it was an unauthorized adaptation of Dracula. F.W. Murnau, the director, I guess, just said, eh, fuck it, we'll just change the names in it. And uh, that didn't work. <laughs> Bram Stoker's widow said, um, excuse me. That's my husband, my late husband, Estate's story. And so she sued them and the courts sided with her. And the court said every fucking print of this movie must be burned. No one must ever see it again. And somehow uh, a couple prints made it out into, I think, Prague, France, and then somewhere in the somewhere else in the Czech Republic. But either way, it survived. And that's what led this other element of fucking creepiness to this movie it's like this movie should not exist anymore they tried to burn every copy and somehow it survived and again this is 1998 no one was really on the internet looking into this stuff so like that's really all you would know about 
Nosferatu. It was German. It was from the 20s. They tried getting rid of it. And the guy that plays the fucking vampire in it, his name is Max Schreck, which is German for Maximum Terror. The whole fucking thing was like an urban legend. But you could hold it in your hand and pop it into your VCR. So I just remember being obsessed with this movie as a kid. And... Like a year or two later, I, I saw on AOL News that they were making this movie called Shadow of the Vampire yes. with fucking John Malkovich and Willem Dafoe. And they're like, upcoming horror movie about the making of Nosferatu. And the, the plot idea is what if Max Shrek was so good at his role because he was a real vampire. And I was like, no way. This is so fucking cool. They're making a horror movie like just for me. Like, it just felt so centric to everything I fucking loved. And I was like, this is going to be great. And I saw it. And it lived up to everything. But what I really loved about that movie was it's a love letter to making a film. If, like, if, if you kind of, like, take your mind off the horror elements for a minute in there, it is a love story to the birth of modern cinema. And the the making of Nosferatu has more in common, I think, with, you know, John Carpenter trying to make the first Halloween and Sean Cunningham making the first Friday the 13th. You know, it wasn't this big, huge studio thing. It was a small crew and the technology was new and the budget was low. And but they, they just cared about what they wanted to make and it shined through. And so watching that movie made me want to make a movie. But I never thought like, oh, yeah, one day I'll be a Hollywood director. But. You know, me and my friends, we would get like Halloween makeup and and dress ourselves up like Nosferatu and Hutter. And uh, we would we first did it with a camcorder. We remade it. We did like a 15 minute condensed version of Nosferatu. And then I went full fucking hipster at like 12. And I was like, no, no, no. We got to shoot it on film. So like, we went to a garage sale and got a Super 8 camera and bought some Super 8 cartridges off of eBay for like three bucks, like new old stock from the 70s. And we started shooting one on film. And so th I guess that's the first time I ever tried making, you know, quote unquote, a movie. But what really changed my life with thinking, OK, you can do this, like even pre YouTube or anything like that was um, when I was 18, I worked at a Blockbuster video in Freehold. It was my second job. I just graduated high school. And um, this is so funny because it's so stupid. But the tape return was this big thing under one of the counters. You could literally sit in it and they would encourage us to do it. They'd be like, oh, uh, yeah, okay, uh, Cassie, you go and man the cash register uh, Jay, you go and, uh, make sure all the boxes are in the, the right spot. Jesse, handle the return dump. And I was like, oh, okay. And so there's my six foot two ass sitting in this, basically a cabinet under the counter, putting the, um, the, the yellow security tabs back in the DVD and VHS cases. And, you know, sometimes like the, the fucking things would come in and beam you in the head. And one morning I was in there and a VHS tape beamed me in the fucking head. And I'm like, God damn it, what the hell was that? And I pick it up, and it's this movie I had never seen or heard of, and it was called The Evil Dead. And I just see the cover, and it's the, the famous Stephen King quote. The most Which basically got the movie out there. Hell fucking yeah. And yeah, I was yeah, once Stephen King, King says this is like a fucking masterpiece, mm -hmm. that's what gets it going. Fuck yeah, dude. Now he just and, tweets. Yeah. <laughs> 
But sometimes he'll tweet a good movie recommendation. Yeah, he'll so be like, try- hey, check this out. And like, and whoever made the movie is like, yo, he fucking tweeted my movie. <laughs> and then check out this movie that I was watching while I was angry at Trump today. Um, but yeah, and it was, it was like just that quote on the box that made me take an interest, you know, because I was really into Stephen King at that point. Um, like again, with Nosferatu, I became obsessed with tracking down anything that was like inspired by Nosferatu or somehow tangentially related to it. And that led me to Salem's Lot. Uh, I read the book and then I, I watched the miniseries from 1979 with David Soul and Reggie Nalder. And the makeup is so fucking great on Barlow and that because it's like they took the original Nosferatu design and they were like, amp it up to fucking 10, man. And it was great. So I see Stephen King's name on this video, the, the most ferociously original uh, horror movie of 1981. And I'm like, OK, so I flip over the back and I, I got to track down what edition of this film, um, which one it was. I don't know if it was one of the Anchor Bay reissues but on the back instead of just giving the plot of the movie probably because giving the plot of the movie like you'd you'd be hard pressed to you know try and stretch it out beyond two sentences you know these dudes go to a cabin shit gets fucked up watch this um but it's it it gave a synopsis of how the film was made and i was like okay this is different because it talks about like um in the summer of 1979 three college friends and a small crew of their buddies from Michigan ventured into the woods of Tennessee to shoot a low-budget horror movie themselves. And thanks to a review from Stephen King, it became an international sensation. I want to like, say that's the Anchor Bay one because I feel like I, I, mm-hmm. I, I feel I have I still have that DVD to this day. I'm as you're saying that I'm looking at my. Uh, my rack of movies here and I'm trying to find it, but it's not jumping out at me, but I feel like mm-hmm. that is that that's the, the anchor Bay one. Anyway, continue. Well, yeah, I just, I just read that and I was like, wait a minute, this is a movie made by some college buddies in the fucking woods. And it's here at a blockbuster and, and it's been a classic since 81 and Stephen King's on the front going, rent this movie. And I'm just like, no, I thought you would do like I thought studios had I thought every movie had a budget of 50 million dollars. So I was like, OK, like and I mean, just the way that that description on the back was written, it was almost like it was Blair Witch esque, you know, like instead of three filmmakers going into the woods of Maryland in October 1999 and disappearing, it was three filmmakers going into the woods of Tennessee in 1979 and coming out with the most ferociously original horror movie Stephen King had ever seen. So I'm like, I I gotta fucking watch this. I wasn't like a huge, like obsessive horror nerd. I wasn't the guy at the time that was like, I need to track down every home video release of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I was just like, Oh yeah, I'll watch Stephen King movies. Stephen King's cool. And I love Nosferatu, but like, that's as far as it went. And so I rented it and I took it home that night and like I it sounds quaint because like a lot of the special effects are kind of cheesy by today's standard but the movie scared the fuck out of me just the the weird jerky movements like Mm. once they become possessed and that oh man that fucking pencil right into the ankle and I, I I just fell in love with it and I always kept it in the back of my head that if you ever want to make a movie these fucking college dropouts from michigan did it and not only 
did it get released, Stephen King fell in love with it and it became a legend. So not that I ever thought I was going to make anything legendary, but it at least told me you can do this. And, and you know, before streaming, that meant a lot. You know, streaming now, it's it's opened so many doors for so many filmmakers, myself included. But in 2006, sitting in that tape return at Blockbuster Video in Freehold, New Jersey, being able to hold something in your hand that told you, you can go out and try to achieve your vision. And hey, maybe you're going to make it one day. Maybe you will make something that you know, your favorite horror writer will love, or some kid in another video store will will take it home and fall in love with a new movie. Like that just it spoke wonders to me. And that kind of that that attitude really led to uh Dan Jones and uh myself making the Acid King. If that tape had never hit me in the head at Blockbuster Video while I was putting those those shitty yellow return security tabs back in these cases, I, I, I probably would have given up. I would have never thought like, oh yeah, we could just do this ourselves. That is a perfect segue because I want to get to the Acid King. But, but before I say anything like that, I just want to give my two cents on Sam Raimi. Sure. I, I, I just always loved how he's never really shed that image of kind of like everything you just said about Evil Dead and like how he's just this phenomenal independent filmmaker you never really hear anybody say anything too bad about him even though everybody hates spider-man 3 but um <laughs> well it was a third one and it was a studio franchise they all can't be perfect yeah, you know it, you're gonna have one dud in there if it's the same director for three of them and, hell yeah but like I, I just always love how even though sam raimi is i, I love how he's kind of shepherding a lot of new horror uh filmmakers as a as he's a producer it, you just never hear a bad thing about him and he he doesn't strike me as yeah he's gone on to bigger budgets and whatnot but i feel like he doesn't i remember when um drag me to hell came out mm-hmm. and I, I don't know how you feel about it but like i, I was watching it and I, I haven't seen it in a few years but i was just like okay he's back to kind of making evil dead shit again like there's some stuff that yeah there's more money being thrown at it but the the way the the way the scenes work out and the way the scares come, it just felt very evil dead to me. I feel like he's just never really lost who he was when he was making that movie. And some directors who come up that way kind of shed that image a little bit. And, you know, he's on track to make a Marvel movie, which I'm curious to see how that one comes out. But well, I also, I also love that he's kind of like Kevin Smith in the same thing. It's like, no, no matter how much success he's had at the heart of it, it's still, He's still Sam Raimi from Michigan making goofy movies with Bruce Campbell and his brother and Rob Tappert and all these. It's it's always been about that. Even when you're throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at him, it's still Sam from Michigan going, okay, well, let me call my friend Bruce and let me get Rob on the phone. And I'm sure we can find something for Ted to do. And if all these other people and all these crew members and other actors want to come along and do it and I'll find some way to get my Oldsmobile Delta in the movie. Great. (laughs) I mean, that fucking car is even in the quick and the dead for Christ's sake. They they made it look like they're all right. We're just going to drape this over and it's a covered wagon. Now it's like, he's still, and and that's what I love about it because you know, if if you want to get sappy about it, it's a fucking beautiful story. It's, it's, you know, there are a few stories like that and horror that are just so goddamn heartwarming you know one of them being of course 
while Sam and his buddies who had been making these Super 8 shorts with him since he was a kid, you know, took a big risk. They went in the woods, they raised all this money, and they created a fucking modern horror masterpiece that is is continuing to spin things off almost half a century later and they all went on to have great careers i mean jesus christ bruce campbell has just become this legend i mean you know he's bruce campbell you know he he stands in his own arena as a personality not just in horror but in everything else and that all goes back to these kids in michigan just loving three stooges shorts and grabbing a super a camera yeah like people forget that like that was I mean, like guys like you and me don't really forget, but like Sam Raimi making a horror film, but he basically takes a nod from like Three Stooges or like silent era comedy. Films Hell yeah, man. Techniques. Have you have you ever read? And I found this book by chance at like a Barnes and Noble bargain bin for like six bucks hardcover. I think it came out in the early 2000s. It is Bruce Campbell's book. Uh, if chins could kill confessions of a B movie actor, dude, not only have I read that, I, I, I read the, the sequel he wrote to it. Like the I, sequel. <laughs> yeah. And both of them are amazing. Of, of course, if chins could kill has all the good, uh, it's got a lot of evil dead shit stuff. In it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh hail to the chin is more about his later TV stuff. And then there's a bit about Ash uh, versus evil dead in there, but yeah, no, all that stuff. Like, I mean, it's the same 15 stories that they all have been telling about Evil Dead for 40 years, but I, I fucking never get tired of them. Yeah. it's And again, it's one of those heartwarming stories in horror. Just like I think about um Stephen King. He's, you know, living in this fucking trailer in Maine, and he's working, you know, as a part-time English teacher. His wife is slaving away at Dunkin' Donuts. He's got two kids in the next room. And he's just in this laundry room of this tiny trailer, sitting Indian style on the floor with his wife's portable typewriter. And he's knocking out Carrie in Salem's lot, hoping he's going to get a break. And then, like, ten years later, not only is he arguably the most successful American author, maybe the most successful author on the planet, and he's directing his own fucking movies. And who's doing the soundtrack? For that movie, it's his favorite band to listen to while writing. It's ACDC. ACDC. Like, and most people shit on Maximum Overdrive. But, like, just knowing behind that, it's like 10 years before that movie, he was just this poor schlub in a trailer listening to ACDC while he's typing out vampire stories, hoping someone's going to give him a break so he can give his kids a better life and his wife, you know, a nice house to live in. And now he's on top and ACDC is like, fuck yeah, we'll do the soundtrack for your trucks movie, dude. Like, that's beautiful to me. <laughs> I just got through my second reading of uh, On Writing. Oh, my God. It's, it's the Bible, the dude. I've read. Every time I go to start a new book, uh, you know, like writing one, I always go back and listen to the audiobook of that. Like, some people, like, consult um, The Elements of Style by Strunk and White. Others, you know, they have. Others. I always go back to on writing because that mm. the advice in there is invaluable, and then plus you get a memoir out of it too. He's sneaky like that. Well, um, I don't. <laughs> we could keep going like this for a while, and I'd love to, but maybe for another episode. But I do want to talk about your film. And oh, that thing, yeah, sure. yeah, that thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Acid King, a doc. Well, I mean, we touched on it in the very beginning, but. Um, mm-hmm just to kind of kick things off with asking you about it, like how did this 
basically a true story from the eighties, but uh, how did like the idea to want to do this? Uh, and I should acknowledge the fact that you also have a, you know, a, a co-director on it as well. Dan, Dan, yeah. Dan's on a plane somewhere right now. He couldn't make it tonight. Cause he's on a uh, anniversary trip with his lovely wife, Andrea. They were visiting Chicago for the weekend. Right now he's airborne. So uh, hopefully he, uh, he isn't puking in a bag while I'm doing this, but Dan, if you're listening, what's up, buddy? But uh, yeah. How did you decide to want to do this? How did this land on your desk? Well, I'll give you the cliff notes because we've been talking a while. But basically, after Death on the Devil's Teeth came out, it got a little bit of a, uh, a modest following. And someone at Simon & Schuster took notice. And uh, an editor there was having lunch with my literary agent, Eric Myers. And they said, we're getting this new true crime line together. It's, it's geared towards teenagers. Uh, I guess, you know, the goosebumps of true crime or the fear street of true crime. I, I'm not sure exactly what they were going for, but, you know, they wanted it to be teen centric. And they said, would Jesse be interested in uh, writing a book for the series? We only ask that he picks a case where the, the perpetrator and the victim were both teenagers. And immediately I thought of Ricky Casso and Gary Lowers, whose story I had come across while researching the Satanic Panic on my first book. And uh, I said, yeah, uh, you know, I know there's already a book out there about it called Say You Love Satan. But I imagine, you know, you know, that book came out in 1987. There was no Internet then. It was harder to track people down for interviews. I imagine I could write an updated version of the story and, and you know, tackle it from a slightly different angle at most. And they said, yeah, sure, go with it. And um for the book was even finished, the, they had announced in Publishers Marketplace that I had signed a deal with Simon & Schuster for this book on the Ricky Casso case. And uh, a documentarian who will remain nameless contacted me because he saw this and he said, I really see this being a six-part docuseries for Netflix. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, but I'll settle for A&E if we can't get them. And I was like, okay, well, let's talk. I, I had seen a few of his prior... Um, projects and I thought they were pretty good and so long story short we worked out a pitch book for it but every time the subject matter of Ricky Casso and his occult connections kept coming up we we did not see eye to eye on it um as I alluded to before the press tried to make Ricky's murder of his friend Gary Lowers out to be a satanic sacrifice carried out by a cult that Ricky was the leader of which wasn't true. I mean, Ricky was into the occult, but there was no actual cult. And it, even if there was one, he was not the leader of it. Like, the media tried blaming this gang of pot dealers in Northport who called themselves the Knights of the Black Circle because they were King Arthur nerds. Uh, they tried calling them a devil cult, but they were all like four or five years older than Ricky and didn't hang out with him, let alone, you know, let him be their leader. And every time I would talk to this documentarian, I'd be like, hey, listen, in the pitch book, it keeps saying Ricky was the leader of the Knights of the Black Circle cult. That's not true. They weren't a cult and he wasn't the leader. And he would just, you know, blow smoke up my ass with this bullshit about, oh, yeah, I know. But listen, we have to get producers and executives interested in the project, you know, like they love teen death cult shit. So, you know, let's just uh, let's keep it that way. And then when we get the green light and a check to start filming the, the series, then we'll show everybody the true story. So that was a red flag right there. And then um, when it came time to get down to brass tacks to ink the deal, and this is where like the ugly corporate shit comes into it. Uh, but to give you like the cliff notes of it, basically when a documentarian wants to adapt your book, they have to get 
the rights from you, essentially permission for it. And uh, usually that comes with um, a fine, an offer of financial compensation because when they option the rights to your book, they usually don't have a deal with the network in place. So they'll be like, listen, we basically want to rent the rights to your book for, from you anywhere from 18 months to two or three years. And so when it came time to finalize that part of the deal, this guy um, who was talking to me from his Manhattan office <laughs> was telling me, oh, I don't have any money for the rights to the book. Would you give it to me for free? And not that I, I had an office. <laughs> yeah. He was really slumming it. And uh, not that I did this for money or anything, but I mean, this guy wanted a hundred percent of the film and TV rights to my book for upwards of two years. And I said, uh, that, that, that's a little bit risky. And uh, you know, my agent got involved with some discussions with him. And basically the guy was like, well, tell Jesse, I'll give him like two grand if he wants. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I can spin this to my advantage. And I told him, I said, listen, save the two grand. I'll give you the rights to the book for free, but under this condition that I uh, co-write it with you, this docu-series, and I am on set every day of filming as a historical advisor to make sure that the facts are preserved. And immediately this guy's like, oh, God, dude, like, you don't understand. Like, these things, these, these productions, they're so low budget. I can't afford to put you up in a hotel the whole time that we're shooting. And I'm like, well, listen, if you can, you can put the camera guy and the guy that runs the lights and the sound in the Motel 6 on, on Long Island, you could put the guy that wrote the book that you want the rights to. Mm. And he's like, oh, no, I just can't have you on set fact checking everything I do, Jesse. This, this needs to be about my personal journey with the story. And I was like, fuck this. It's like, no way. So I, 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 I shut that deal down immediately. All this dude wanted was the rights to my book so he could reenact himself making every journalistic discovery I made in the book on TV so that his audience would think, oh my God, he totally found the truth of this story. Except the, the irony is, is he wanted to peddle more bullshit about a satanic cult. So when I uh, torpedoed that deal... It became very frustrating because my only other options at, at that point was some production company had reached out to me around the same time and they wanted to do like a half hour episode of like a, a series on investigation discovery about it. And I remember asking them what their credentials were because I had never heard of this production company and they were like, oh, well, we do uh, Tanked, the Fish Tank series and Amish Mafia. And I was like, Amish Mafia, eh? Uh-huh. And I'm like, okay. I'll get back to you. And um, they haven't heard from me since. So, uh, you know, I was, I was feeling kind of defeated there. Not that it was like, you know, like my goal since day one to make sure that this got on TV. But once I saw the offers were there, I was just like, if I give this to someone else, they're just going to fuck with the facts like they've always done with this story. And I'm going to regret handing it over to them. And by this point, I had interviewed three dozen of Gary Lowers' friends and his sister and a lot of other people that knew him. And, you know, I just I could not bring myself to allow a situation to happen where I was unwittingly deceiving the, the the friends and family of a teenage murder victim. Like, hey, guys, I know I told you that I was going to put all the satanic rumors to rest, but they're going to put me on TV, dog. So hope you understand. Later, dude. I Good on you for it. that. I just couldn't live with myself. I mean, right. I, I promised these people, like, 
no, I'm not going to sell more Satan bullshit. And that's not to say there there was no satanic element to this. Ricky Casso was into Satanism. Like, I play Ozzy Osbourne records backwards, you know, that kind of shit. But he did not have a devil cult in the woods where a hundred members of which watched him sacrifice a boy. It was a drug murder. He, he killed Gary Lowers because Gary Lowers stole 10 bags of PCP out of his pocket at a party when he was passed out. That's it. And there wasn't any money in the world, not to sound too altruistic, but no offer could have made me look in his sister's eyes and, and say, listen, they offered me a lot of money to lie about your brother's death. I hope you understand by... So I just made the decision that if, if, if this is ever going to be done right on a visual medium, I am going to have to have some element of control to make sure that that Satan shit is, is put to bed. And it just occurred to me, it's like, well, I got a ton of fucking friends that know their way around cameras. They know how to set up lights. They know how to do sound. They know how to edit. You know, they know how to drive a car and be a gopher and get, you know, things during the shoot. And I'm sure that they would love an interesting true story to work on. So I said, fuck it. Let me call these guys and raise a small budget through Indiegogo and see if we could do this ourselves. And by some stroke of luck, we raised a modest budget for it. I was able to hire some great cinematographers and I called up my best friend Dan and I was just like, listen, you need to come and do the Satan shit with me. And he was just like, okay. And so I was like, all right, fine. I'll see you at the airport. We're going to Long Island. <laughs> and it just, it kind of snowballed from there. And it took about two and a half years to get everything shot. We made a few different trips to Northport. And then we had a, um, a California leg of filming, uh, documentarian Summer Jones, who did Yes, No, Goodbye, the Ouija board documentary. She handled the interviews with people that were California based. And then um, our executive producer, Anthony Zankis, who was also a friend of Gary Lauer's, he handled um, an additional Long Island shoot that we could not make it out for because COVID happened. This was right in the middle of the lockdown. And he was like, Okay, well, I can organize it out here and we can make sure that social distancing is in place and all of that good stuff. And then we'll just mail you a hard drive with the footage on it. And then there was a Texas leg of shooting as well. And it all just, everybody bringing their A game to this end, working hard with the limitations that we had, whether they be technological or budget or location due to the, the pandemic, we all just threw our A game in and somehow the documentary came together through that. And um, after almost five years now, the film is finally coming out. And, and hopefully those who want to see the true story of one of the most bizarre satanic panic cases on record and arguably the birth of the modern satanic panic, hopefully they'll check out the film and they will see that the truth is stranger than fiction. It's an intense and wild story. No, it, it really, it really is. It's you, you definitely got me for a hook when watching it because the you know the first hour of the movie, I'm like, is this guy a Satanist or is he just like really heavy on drugs? And it's just like, both. Yeah, he was like really fucking <laughs> into drug. Like this, like I, I don't know. I I, I kind of it struck a chord with me because it felt like a very and this is kind of going back to maybe. I'll ask this question, I guess, because at the beginning of the show, you were talking about like, you know, being into all these like 
you know, murder stories in like all these small towns and whatnot. Is that kind mm-hmm. of why you were drawn to something like this? I think so, if not overtly, maybe subconsciously, because on the surface it is almost like a Stephen King story. It's I was picturesque- gonna say that it felt like this out like really yeah. out there story because Stephen King gives you an out there story, but he grounds it in reality. And that's kind of what I felt like you were going for with this film. It really, really is, especially back then in 84, because now Northport is much more hoity-toity as much of Suffolk County, Long Island is. But back then it was a lot more blue collar and we go into that in the film. So it, you had this picturesque little lower middle class village, a little bit of old money, but not a lot. At the foot of Main Street is this gorgeous harbor with a park and a gazebo. And lobster fishermen are out on the water. And these nice little restaurants and like little knick-knack shops and all of that. And a bookstore and a music store. And it is like this prototypical perfect setting. Like if, if you were writing this story out of thin air, out of whole cloth, you would write Northport. And I think that that's why this story happened in real life. It was the perfect storm there. It was the type of place where things like this could happen. If this had happened in, you know, the South Bronx at the time, which was where Ricky was buying his PCP from, I don't think it would have made front page news in a single newspaper. I think people would have just said, oh yeah, it's crazy kids in the city again, who cares? But because of the fact that it happened out in this village that was, on the surface at least, like, oh my god, but it's so nice there. You know, people leave Manhattan to live there because they want to get away from all the bullshit. It's this nice little quiet seaside town with, uh, you know, a nice football team at the high school and these nice little restaurants, like I said, and everybody seems to know each other's name and get along. But much like Salem's Lot and Needful Things and stuff like that, there was this ugly undercurrent festering just under the surface in that town that led to these awful things happening there. I mean, there not only was there a problem with teenage homelessness in this community that's supposedly so nice, kids, you know, as young as 11 and 12 years old being thrown out to fend for themselves and live in the woods and break into parked cars and stuff. I mean, it, there was a grave robbing problem in that town between more than one kid. It's kind of hard to ignore that. But, you know, of course, nowadays, the time has passed. Northport, and I mean, who can really blame them at this point? But they want it all, like, wrapped up in the nice little bow that, oh, no, no, the only bad thing that ever happened in Northport was Ricky Casso. He was the only bad seed. Forget all that. We, we just want to talk to you about how cool it is that Jack Kerouac used to get shit-faced here for a little bit. And, hey, you like the Sopranos? Edie Falco's from here. Isn't that cool? <laughs> and And that's it. They don't want to talk about anything else. But the fact of the matter is, is like I mentioned before, you know, these there were kids in that community that were being thrown out in the street like they were the fucking week's garbage. There were kids that were breaking into crypts and digging up graves so they could sell bones at magic shops in Manhattan or do rituals at the Amityville Horror House. 
There was a kid that was murdered in East Northport the year before this at a party who was killed by a teenage girl from mouthing off at a party and her mother tried to cover it up to the police. She broke a beer bottle and rolled the body around in the glass and called the cops and said, oh my goodness, this poor boy, he must have fallen on a beer bottle and bled out. And of course the cops smelled bullshit and the girl was sent away to an institution. And then, I don't know, maybe a year and a half later was the Lowers murder. So again, it became very obvious that this was a tale of a seemingly beautiful town that just about anyone could see themselves living in, or at least wanting to live in, having this, again, ugly, festering underbelly that no one wanted to talk about. So it almost became like an exorcism for a lot of the people that I interviewed for it. It's like, oh, finally, a journalist wants to talk about what's fucking really going on here and what actually caused all this stuff. So I was happy that it was cathartic for a lot of people. Yeah, no, it, it seemed like kind of in the final final few minutes of the movie, there was a tone without a lot of the locals that were talking about like, you know, no, this isn't some satanic panic bullshit. Like I, I knew these, there, there was a, I, I can't remember any of the guys' names, but you know, there was people that talked about, look, I knew this person. I knew this person. Yeah. They were just into drugs. It wasn't some like big, you know, cult going on thing. There was just a lot going on under the surface in this town that blew up with this incident. And I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about Ricky Casso for a minute and sure. what maybe your take on him is psychologically. Usually there's always the debate when it comes to murderers. Is it nature mm-hmm. versus nurture? And what would you think was his situation? It was definitely nurture. Ricky Casso was a normal kid. That was one of the striking things about researching the book and eventually the film, too, because the way that the press, you know, really represented this story was that these killers just come out of nowhere. They sprout out from the ground and they're bad seeds. It's no one's fault. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if he says it in the film or or if it's just in the book or if it's in both, but something that uh, Anthony Zankis, one of Gary's friends and, and who also executive produced the film with us, said to me one time, it was very, very striking. He said to me, he goes, you know why they blamed this on, you know, drugs and heavy metal? Because it let society off the hook. If you could just blame it on Ozzy Osbourne and acid, none of the parents in the community had to look inside themselves and go, shit, maybe we should take better care of our kids. And Ricky Casso was a very normal, lower middle class kid. His parents... They were not wealthy by any means. His mother was a part-time, I believe she was an English teacher, and then sometimes she did secretarial work. She also had long stretches of being a homemaker. She had four kids to raise, and Dick Casso was a local history teacher. He was a, a football coach, and that's where a lot of the real tension in that house started. Ricky was... I hate using the phrase over and over again, but he was your all-American boy. You know, he would get up at six in the morning to go play football in the street with his friends on the block before the school bus came. He was very normal. Up until his adolescence is just so unremarkable. You find yourself struggling to reach for something that's like, oh, well, is there a hint here? You know, some sort of foreshadowing, and there isn't. It was only when puberty hit, and he was getting into his adolescence and his interest in football was waning that his father just didn't have any use for him anymore. 
he came from this line of semi-professional athletes. Dick Casso, his father, uh, Alfred Casso, was a um, a minor league baseball player. Dick Casso was a, a football star in high school and college and was now a, a football coach at Cold Spring Harbor High School. So he expected his son to follow in the same footsteps. And when it became clear that his son had ambitions outside of athletics, he just didn't want to know him. He would look for any excuse to take his frustrations out on him. I don't think it's in the film. I know it's in the book, though, but I talked to several people. They were like, oh, yeah, one time we saw him chasing Ricky down the block with a pair of scissors in his hand because Ricky didn't want to get a haircut. And when Ricky outran him, he went back inside and grabbed all of his concert T-shirts and just cut them up on the front lawn and threw them in the grass. Shit like that. And uh, one story, absolutely fucking heartbreaking story that um, is in the film. We talked to one of Ricky's close friends in middle school who said, oh yeah, Ricky showed up to class one day in the seventh grade with a bunch of bruises on his arms and his chest. And I asked him, what the hell is that all about? And he's just like, oh, well, I skipped football practice yesterday, so my father beat me with a broomstick. Like shit like that. That's what the fucking parents, at least some parents, did in the 80s. Oh, my son, you know, he didn't want to go to football practice. I'm going to beat him with a piece of wood. And then they wonder why their kids end up turning to drugs and murdering people. That's what pissed me off the most about this case. Because, of course, after this became headline news around the world, you know, Ricky's parents got to sit down in all these newspapers and go, Oh, we tried so hard to help him. We don't know how this could have happened. We gave him nothing but love. And, of course, none of their neighbors in the community were going to go and make their lives a living hell by going and telling the newspapers, Well, no, actually, they beat the shit out of him with a broom because he didn't want to play football. And they threw him out when he was 12 years old and he had to fend for himself living in the woods. I mean, there's a part in the film, too, where one of his friends is talking about he had to live in the fucking public bathrooms at Scudder Beach in Northport, which are right next to a sewage treatment plant. So if you're not smelling the shit from the toilets in the public bathroom whose floor you're sleeping on, you're smelling it from the plant. And, you know, this kid's 13 years old. And that's really how he got into drug dealing. He needed a way to make... Yeah. You know, his friends tell me like, oh, yeah, you know, Ricky would sell acid. So he had some money to go to the grocery store and buy a pound of bologna and a loaf of white bread. And then he'd go back up into the woods and eat it in front of his little campfire that he made. It didn't make it into the documentary because we didn't have any visual reference for it. But in the book, we talk about how he found a couch, I think, that was being thrown out. And um, he dragged it up into the woods and he lived on this couch. And then one day it rained and the couch was ruined. It was just completely soaking wet. So he burned it for warmth and then slept on the cold ground. And then, of course, he, he would contract double pneumonia and would go home and beg his parents to take him to the doctor. And the second he got better again, they would throw him out because he cursed in the house. Or There's this big myth that... uh. Oh, well, he didn't want to help himself. You can't help someone that doesn't want to help themselves. This kid did a lot. There was a uh, a walk-in counseling center on Main Street in Northport called The Place. And he took it upon himself to go in there. And he found a counselor there and, and would engage in therapy sessions there. This is the early 1980s. That wasn't in vogue, especially not for kids. You know, teenage metalheads. Like, you, know, you think it's weird seeing Tony Soprano in therapy. Think about seeing the Acid King in therapy. But he did it. He wanted to get better. And, you know, he went back to his parents' house and said, you know, if I, if I stop wearing concert tees and I cut my hair and get back in school, will you let me move back in? And, uh, you know, they would say yes, and he would be late for a class, and they would throw him out again to go live in the woods. Not even, like, 
you know, oh, well, why don't you go live with a friend or why don't you go stay at grandma's house or something? They would kick him out and he'd go live in the woods. And so when you have this lethal combination of this kid who suffered horrific mental and physical abuse in his home, coupled with, um, he was around this time, he was diagnosed with what we now know as bipolar disorder. Back then they called it manic depression. So you have an untreated manic depressive being physically and emotionally abused at home. He's thrown out, forced to live in the woods. His only means of making money to afford food and clothing are by selling drugs and he's self-medicating his depression and his trauma with these drugs. Like, it's really not hard to see how what happened happened. And I'm not excusing it by any means whatsoever. My sympathy for Ricky Casso ends the moment he picked up the knife he used to kill Gary Lowers. But I'm not going to sit here and go, I can't believe this happened. There's no reason this should have happened. This was the perfect storm. Nothing went right for this kid. This kid tried. He had his support base pulled out from under him. And in a time and a community that made no effort to understand mental illness or trauma and neighbors that looked the other way when they saw abuse of a child, it was going to end horrifically for Ricky Casso by all accounts. The only difference is he took someone down with him as if that wasn't bad enough. The second you had a, a, a ravenous, vulturous media come in and, you know, oh, we could turn this into a Satan case. That'll get us ratings. And the uh, the story just snowballed into this urban legend that still lasts today. I mean, if you Google Ricky Casso, I don't know what the numbers are now, but when I Googled him back in 2018, out of curiosity to see the statistics on this, there are over 100,000 pages that refer to him as the leader of the Knights of the Black Circle Satan cult, which is not true. There was no fucking cult. But the story behind the story and how the story became that is far more interesting than the bullshit that the National Enquirer and the New York Daily News and the Post were peddling at the time. And um, I really hope that people that go into the documentary and if they check out the book afterwards, they do find that interesting because, I mean... Yeah, it would have been super easy to make, you know, an exploitation thing about this terrible, grisly murder, even without the Satan window dressing on it. But um, I really hope people see it for what it is. It is a story about trauma and a strange time in American, not just American pop culture, but American culture as, as far as society goes. It's a weird blip in time. And for a lot of people to think, oh, wow, you know, that's just... Well, everything just came together the right way, but thank God that won't happen again. It's going to happen again. We're seeing the resurgence of the satanic panic right now with things like QAnon and, and, and Pizzagate and all this shit. Yeah, so That is a wild documentary. Holy shit. Oh, Jesus fucking Not to shift either. gears off your film, but I, I remember catching that and I was like, holy fuck, people believe this. Look at how many people believe the kid in an ACDC shirt had a hundred like, cult members in robes yeah. at his disposal to hunt down children in a nice little picturesque Northport and uh, sacrifice them in front of a roaring bonfire. You know, like, that's all it is. It's the same satanic panic. It's just with a new flavor. It's like new Coke, man. It's just yeah. instead of Ricky Casso and ACDC and the devil, it's Tom Hanks, Pedophile Island, and Q. Like, it's just more of the same bullshit. <laughs> kind of a funny story on the QAnon thing. So uh, so I'm, 
I don't think I told you this, but I'm down in Florida right now. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Are you near Clearwater? <laughs> uh, no, we'll talk more about it off mics. But um, a couple of years ago, I was I was working a, a side job I had where I was going to people's houses and just it was between my job and TV. And anyway, but um, I was doing home assemblies on some stuff and, you know, mm-hmm. putting together like workout equipment. It was a paycheck. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I go to this house. And there's this older woman there and just some guy. I didn't know if they were boyfriend and girlfriend, husband and wife, or I didn't know. But that's besides the point. As I'm mm-hmm. working in their house, they're watching YouTube videos of just like, uh, you know, Obama being a, you know, a child rapist and whatnot. And I'm like, minding my own business, but I'm like, what the fuck are you guys watching? And then it turns into this thing where it's about like, you know, but you know, Trump is our, our savior. And, you know, now, now he's cleaning house on, and like, and I was kind of like, I'm just I'm minding my own fucking business. I'm like, oh, all right, man, I, I don't know. I, I, whatever. And, you know, I left fast forward to, you know, earlier this year when I watched the QAnon documentary on HBO max, that video was literally in the movie. And I was like, nice. Holy fuck. They were into Q. <laughs> It is like a special kind of thing, like without even getting like overtly political. If, if if you take it at face value, it is like almost like Cohen Brothers esque, like the idea of listen, the president he fucking eats and fucks kids, he sucks their adrenochrome, and he comes in them. And the only person that can fucking save us is the host of the Celebrity Apprentice. Why are you running from me? That's what it all boils down to for me. That is a perfect place to leave it. I think you're leaving on a high note there. That was fucking hilarious. That we're going to see in a week from now. Independent filmmaker and true crime author Jesse P. Pollock has been murdered (laughs) by people identifying themselves as QAnon. But that would be cool, though, because maybe then it could get flipped like full circle and Alex Jones could call my murder a false flag operation or something. Listen, he, he was out there. He was trying to expose... The, the Satanism of Ricky Casso, and they killed him. And they're trying to blame it on Q to, to, to you know, distract from the fact that it was Epstein Island that got him. Buy my weight supplement. I have a 40-pound head. Okay. This is the one of the best episodes ever now. Uh, so the Acid King, uh, where can we, uh, I, by the time this airs, it will be out, but if people want to see it, where can they find it? Uh, the Acid King which, as we mentioned before, by the time you all hear this, it is already out. And it can be viewed on demand and streaming on DirecTV, Fios, Voodoo, and uh, something called in, in Demand, I Demand. I don't know. Way to go picking something that isn't confusing. But those who have it probably know what I'm talking about. But uh, that's what we're starting out with. It will hopefully expand further from there, and then um, either later this year or early next year, depending on circumstances that are way out of my control, there is going to be a special edition DVD Blu-ray release with a bunch of special features, director's commentary, behind the scenes, there's a photo gallery. Like, one of my big regrets with the, the Acid King book is my publisher decided to go no photos. So all the photos that would have been in the book are going to be in the photo gallery on this disc. And there are are also extended interviews with some of the more well-known subjects. 
people like Jim Van Beber, Tommy Turner, Nick Mamatas, Lurie S. from Acid King. That's all going to be on there. We tried to load it up with as much bonus content as possible to justify a physical media release, and we're hoping everyone's going to really enjoy it. All right, man. Uh, where, if anybody wants to track you down on the socials, where can anybody find you? Uh, sure thing. Um, death threats and ticking packages can be sent to. Um, it, uh, I'm at J Pollock author, uh, that's J P O L L A C K author. Um, I'm on Twitter and if you want to follow any of the goofy podcasts that I mentioned before, um, you can check out podcast 1289. That's podcast one, two, eight, nine. We're on Apple podcasts and just about every other, uh, podcast service, Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to hear me roast really shitty true crime movies, including direct-to-video Amityville awfulness, you can check out True Crime Movie Club. And uh, that's also wherever podcasts can be found. And uh, we're at True Crime Movie Club on Instagram. And on Twitter, I think we're TCMC Podcast. But um, no one's on Twitter except for QAnon people and... uh, so, yeah, you can find all that I don't stuff do Twitter there. anymore either. I can't. I just, I can't anymore. I have been trying to get banned from there because it's like, at first I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to delete it because I can't take all this, like, neo-Nazi bullshit on there anymore. And then I, I couldn't bring myself to do it because, like, you know, my publisher and my distributor, they expect me to promote things on there. So I'm like, if I get fucking banned for life, I, I don't have to make up excuses. So, like, I just started, like, running my mouth off to all these assholes and shit and calling them, like, terrible, terrible words. And I'm talking, like, this is me going off against neo-Nazis and people that think rape is justified and all this terrible shit. And Twitter will not ban me. It's like, it's like... I'm stuck in purgatory or something like Twitter's almost like, keep it up, man. You're doing God's work. And it's like, no, just kick me the fuck out of here, please. I hate this. Like, no, you're good. We're going to make you king of Twitter eventually. Fuck. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. Find me on there before I'm banned. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Uh, well, Jesse, thank you for a awesome show. No, thank you. And, and anytime you want to come on any of those podcasts, let's do some hot crossover action. Come shit on some awful movies with us. I'm down. I'm definitely down. And as for all of you out there, you know the routine with the basement. You leave a rating, you leave a review, make sure it's a good one so we don't, you know, disappear into the abyss of everybody else who has a podcast. Uh, see you next week. Yeah, Take fuck care. those people. See you fuck. guys. Fuck them. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs>